Today is March 17, 2022, and welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and their guests discuss the latest public health issues relevant to all healthcare providers, their patients, and policymakers. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students like me can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Libby Donovan, and I'm a last-year pharmacy student at the University of Rhode Island, working with the Rhode Island Department of Health alongside my professor, Dr. Bradberg. And I'm Jeff Bradberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the College of Pharmacy and the Academic Collaborations Officer at the Department of Health. All right. So happy St. Patrick's Day, everybody. Today, we have a very special episode recorded here on site at Seminar by the Sea, which is a regional pharmacy conference. Uh, we're honored to welcome Dr. Kelly Matson, Dr. Erica Hardy to the regiment to talk with us about expedited partner therapy. So Dr. Matson, Dr. Hardy, would you both like to introduce yourselves to our listeners? Good morning, everyone. I am Kelly Matson, clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the College of Pharmacy at URI and have an academic collaborative at UMass Memorial Children's Medical Center in Worcester. And I'm Erica Hardy. I'm an infectious disease physician at Women and Infants Hospital. I'm a clinical assistant professor of medicine and OBGYN at Alfred Medical School, Brown University. Thanks so much for being here. We just all talked on a panel at Seminar by the Sea, but the most exciting news is Libby Donovan, future pharmacist, in a a little over a week, got her match day. Results, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so I'm super excited. I matched at uh, the VA in Maine for PGY1 residency, and I'm so excited. I can't wait for the opportunity. And yeah, it's just a very big relief to have that over with and done. And now we can move on. Yeah. And you'll learn about how to do EPT with your in collaboration yes. with your partners at, at the VA. I think yeah. it'll be great. Yeah, I think it'll be awesome. So, yeah, so we're going to basically kind of talk about your talk from this morning um, about STIs and EPT. So just a little bit of background, I guess. So and like the premise of why this is important. So what is the impact that STIs are currently having throughout the country? Yeah, so both nationally, regionally, everywhere, ST rate, STI rates are climbing. So, you know, we, when we talk about EPT, we talked specifically this morning about uh, gonorrhea and chlamydia, just the trend really over the last decade is just an increase in cases. And I think as Dr. Bratberg said, 2021 will be maybe the worst year yet. So I think we have a lot of work to do and that's why EPT is so important. So that indicates to me that COVID has definitely had an impact on these rates. So why, why do you think that is like, what are the reasons that COVID had this impact? Yeah, it's a good, it's such a good question. You know, I don't know. I think a couple of things that we think, you know, we did a small study that is going to be coming out soon in the academic emergency medicine journal of ER usage and helpline calls for sexual violence. And we found that helpline calls were increased and ER visits were decreased as ER visits were decreased for everyone. And so I think the same holds true for treatment for um, sexual health. So I think, you know, less not wanting to, you know, go out and about in the community, places that were previously open to get medical care may not have been open for a time. Um, people not wanting to go to the ER and because not wanting to, you know, at worried about getting COVID in some places. We know a lot of STI care is done in urgent cares and, and emergency departments and, and folks avoided those areas for a long time. And I think to still, to some extent still are. So I think those all contribute. Would you say, I mean, I think what's interesting is like COVID is stigmatizing, right? right? I mean, we have this super stigmatized disease, infections, right? STIs. And now you have to say, I think I have this STI because I 
sort of illegally hung out with this person, mm-hmm. right? Or these people. And so that's, that's sort of, you know, I went to this illegal party, right? Right. You know? I right. wasn't, so I wasn't, you know, social distancing and things like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it wasn't until Omicron when it seemed to be a little bit less, you know, it was just so prevalent. <laughs> Where everyone's sort of like, okay, yeah, there's this <laughs> thing. But, but also in that time, and this but, is just yeah. January this year or in December is that everything was open. Like you exactly. still, right. Yeah. You had mass, you yeah. went, um, you saw people, I, mean, I, I think about my work long ago in an HIV clinic in the Bahamas in a developing country, and everyone there said, we all know each other, yes. we know exactly where that HIV clinic right. is, and there's no way I'm walking out of there. Yeah. And people would travel from far away where yeah. they would literally try to not run into people, and I yeah. think as social distancing was at its height, you didn't want to be that only person, right. even though there was nobody to see you, but mm-hmm. it's this perception of I'm the only person going to the STI clinic, right. you know, on... You know, on the east side of Providence. And I think we did a lot of work to for um, you know telehealth, virtual care, mm-hmm. STI clinics specifically. You know, looked at that. How can we de- deliver mm. care through telehealth? And you know, I think that was really helpful. And I think EPT was almost a model before telehealth of how do you treat STIs? With, you know, um, and not needing to see the partner. So. Right. Right. So, so who is at risk of acquiring an, an STI? So I think anybody with any sexual contact. So I think, you know, most of the general public, it, we talked about stigma and it often it tends to be, you know, stigma associated with STIs. Mm. I hear that from my patients living with HIV, you know, even though it's now a chronic disease, there's still this stigma. Um, but anybody um, who's had any sexual contact is at risk for STI, even one partner. Um, so, yeah. Or even in, you know, what you think is a monogamous relationship. Yeah, I mean, those, those are all difficult things to talk about. Absolutely. What, how, I mean, one of the things that we talked about this morning, I think that was fascinating is this change in the STI, you know, again, during COVID, but the change in the STI guidelines. Do you want to summarize sort of the big changes that you talked about, Dr. Hardy? Yeah, I think the ones that we talked about were some of the treatment differences. Um, remembering, I think, important to point out that the STI treatment guidelines is a little bit of a misnomer. There's so much in that document. They talk about prevention. They talk about STIs and various risk groups and things like that. So really worth looking, delving into and looking through. We, we use it really all the time to look up all sorts of things regarding STIs. So starting with chlamydia and gonorrhea, I think chlamydia, more and more data that for rectal chlamydia, which often may happen in men who have sex with men or any rectal contact, even in women who either have rectal contact or don't report rectal contact, can test positive for chlamydia in the rectal mucosa. And we know that doxycycline is probably a bit more effective for treatment of chlamydia, especially with rectal-associated disease. You know, and so that the recommended therapy changed from azithromycin one gram dose times one to doxycycline 100 milligrams BID for seven days. So that was a major change with chlamydia. And we can talk about that a little bit more in in detail. There may be times where it's really important to do a one-time dose, directly observe therapy versus not taking any of your seven days of doxy. So, you know, there's, it's worth a conversation in knowing the data and why that changed. And then gonorrhea, we no longer, it's, it's no longer recommended to do dual therapy with ceftriaxone and azithromycin. There's concerning increasing resistance to azithromycin with gonorrhea. And so the recommendation is for ceftriaxone alone and the dose has increased. So instead of 250, now it's 500 in folks who are less than 150 kilograms and a gram for those who are over 150 kilograms. And that ceftriaxone is a is an antibiotic that's also given intramuscularly. Oh, so yes. so yeah. there's, so there's you know, it's, it's interesting to talk about COVID and, you know, pharmacies are always open 
And you know, even in just treating STIs, it sounds like there's we now have the a greater importance of pharmacists partnering with clinicians prescribing and, and screening and diagnosing these conditions because adherence is going to be a huge thing for seven days. Adherence is going to be not a big thing for IM administration as long as you have the drug and can administer it and things like that. And so with sort of those patient limitations that in effect, it becomes really important to treat partners. Do you want to talk about, ask your questions about EPT? Yeah. So I, before researching this a little bit and before this talk, I didn't know what EPT was. Dr. Rapper told me I could blame him because he teaches this subject at school. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I guess for our listeners too, it seems that not a lot of people know about this. So what is EPT? So you're not alone. Most pharmacists, <laughs> as we talked about this morning, like when I first got asked the same question, I didn't know. And so I went around and started, started asking pharmacy colleagues and really, even in the room, there maybe was like a handful of hands up really knew what EPT was. So it's an evidence-based practice that's endorsed by the CDC, has been since 2006, and it's really there to prevent reinfection in the patient, particularly from a standpoint of chlamydia and gonorrhea, as we're talking about, and then trying to minimize the barriers to treat their partners to be able to, again, prevent that reinfection. You talked about some of these barriers. What are some limitations to EPT and like the practice right now? Sure. Really, the idea is, is that it's not legal in every state. It's 46 states right now. But then within those states that it is legal, ultimately the regulations are so different across the board. And so, you know, we were talking this morning where in Massachusetts and in Maine, you can write EBT on the prescription, but in Rhode Island, you have to have a patient name. And so all of those are really different and sort of making sure that you know as a pharmacist, what sort of prescriptions that are valid and how do you go about processing those prescriptions? So that's one of the biggest things. Other limitations are just the idea that, you know, there, there can be differences in who might be contraindicated. You don't know particularly about the partner and if they have allergies. So those can be, but really, again, it's been endorsed in sort of knowing that there really hasn't been any adverse effects in doing this for partners, even though we don't have some of that information. But it can be something to sort of think about as well. I think the key thing here is that the pharmacist plays such a good, you know, a lot, we, a lot of what we talked about this morning is collaboration. And I think it's always good to, to have Dr. Hardy, a physician, saying pharmacists are important because we, we need to hear that, right? Yeah, sure. And they're going to listen to them more than, than Kelly and me <laughs> sometimes. Because <laughs> like, oh, Kelly and Jeff are saying this thing, we hear this yeah. all the time. But when the doc says oh, this is important, this is my practice, this is what I do, it's really important that you do this. And you're also telling your colleagues, too. I think right. we've got to be, you know, in a conversation we had on the administration bill, Libby and I heard from some of the leaders at the health department to say, you know, we don't want pharmacists or really any healthcare practitioner doing something they're unfamiliar with infrequently because then there's more right. room for error much less all the other things we'll talk about in terms of regulations. What would you say, Dr. Hardy, about like telling your colleagues about this, about EPT? Yeah, so the first thing I'll start with is pharmacists are not alone in not being familiar with this either. Um, you know, we went through OBGYN practices throughout the state a couple of years ago to raise awareness. And, you know, 
physicians and other providers aren't familiar with it either. It feels really uncomfortable as a doctor to not to give somebody medicine without seeing them. And so that's just sort of counter to what we're used to doing and generally don't do that. Um, When it's public health, you know, things are often different. And so thinking about that, this is some of the things that I tell my colleagues are this is actually an evidence-based practice. So we have, you know, randomized controlled clinical trials that support the fact that this decreases reinfection because we know with STIs, reinfection rate is really high. 20%, I -hmm. think. Yeah, so reinfection rate is quite significant, about 20%. Um, And one way to prevent that is to treat the partner, because what happens is if the partner's not treated, you can continue to treat your patient multiple times, but they'll continue to get reinfected. And we know there's significant sequelae, especially in, in women, from untreated or recurrent chlamydia and gonorrhea, including, you know, infertility, um, ectopic pregnancy, where the egg gets lodged in the fallopian tube, and then the fallopian tube can burst, and that can be a medical emergency, chronic pelvic pain. Um, and so it's, uh, it can be quite significant, so that it's really important to prevent reinfection and prevent transmission in the community. So I think, and the more The more we think about the fact that this is evidence-based, the fact that it's recommended in our national STI treatment guidelines. So I think sometimes when people are uncomfortable turning it around and saying, like, you're really going to have to explain, like, not doing this, you know, if you're not going to, you know, for folks that aren't, are feel uncomfortable following these national guidelines with regulations to support it, or then you really have to have a, a good reason for not doing it. And so I think thinking about it like that as well. I think one helpful. of the, I think, yeah, thank you for that. I think one of the other things to think about, you know, sort of a priori here is that these are often asymptomatic infections, right? right. right. These infections are designed to infect humans and be transmitted among yep. humans. Like we mm-hmm. are not eradicating this. This is not polio. This is not, yep. you know, we're not, it's close to eliminating. It's another podcast, probably another day. But <laughs> but I think that's what's hard. Like you talk about physicians mm-hmm. not diagnosing it. Mm-hmm. Who do you, what, what do physicians see in their clinic? I have this mm-hmm. problem or I have this chronic problem. Yep. And there's just a lot, you know, there's just like a lack of training of sexual health mm-hmm. or having that be screened. And then you add that to the stigma, even if they're mm-hmm. asked, you may mm-hmm. not be told these things, or people aren't concerned about it because they aren't having symptoms. Right. And right. so treating the patients is sort of this under underutilized thing mm-hmm. in non-specialty care. And then, and again, then you go to the pharmacist saying, why am I giving meds to somebody I'm not seeing or mm-hmm. giving you extra meds like in right. Rhode Island to give to somebody? So, yeah. you know, this has been around for 15 years, but like everything in implementation, we could say <laughs> this is best practice, but it takes 20 years to go into practice, right? Mm-hmm. I think maybe with COVID, sometimes these concepts of kind of rethinking the way we deliver care, this might be EPT's moment. <laughs> right. No, because I mean, I think like yeah. what you said was true. Now that we really have had telehealth and mm-hmm. sort of not having that seeking care and having that, those examinations needed, this really sort of, oh, we can do right. this. This is not just like for a specific area or right. a specific DC state. This yes. is, we can do this and mm-hmm. that it seems a little more Absolutely. palatable. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that there's, I mean, we it, again, another podcast, but I always think that if somebody who needs counseling or whose partner needs to be diagnosed or be interviewed, you know, if two people, I mean, I've had this in my very infrequent community pharmacy where two people came in and one's getting a prescription, I mean, knowing what I know now, because I wasn't taught this either, but to, to say, hey, why don't you jump on that iPad in that nice little, you know, little room and call up somebody on call and say... Yep hey, I think I need this. And then everybody's sort of reassured and it goes into that, like you talked this morning about, it's really 
hard to prescribe for somebody you haven't seen. Yeah. It's really hard to give a patient meds to give to somebody else. Like we see that with naloxone and other things where it's intended mm-hmm. for somebody else. Right. You're like, wow, they weren't examined. They weren't, you know, but with telehealth, I think we're like, oh yeah, you know, we've all done telehealth visits. That's great. Mm-hmm. And when examination isn't needed, I think it's really ideal for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it seems like what evidence we do have EPT has had a really big impact in the U.S. so far. It reduces prevalence at follow-up, safe and effective for, for partners. And what I think is really important that no adverse events have been reported. So it kind of alluded to this and talked about this with telehealth. So how can we really expand access to EPT? I mean, I guess, especially with with pharmacists and how can we involve pharmacists? I think from a standpoint of, is awareness, first and foremost, and, and that was really sort of you know, from doing this talk is really sort of just trying to get that information out there. You know, we looked, Jeff and I with another student looked at a stu- like doing a study, but ultimately before that, there was studies like saying that even when there was EPT materials like on a public health website, you know, at the Department of Health, only less than like 10% of it was actually directed towards pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And so really just sort of understanding that it is there and sort of what it is. And then sort of, you know, today we talked a lot about barriers and how to maybe streamline the process or how to like go through the process and knowing state regulation. But I think just the awareness and familiarity about EPT and why it's important. I think, you know, Dr. Hardy really talked about that now. And then earlier in the day is just sort of that reinfection is there and it's almost 20%. So like to that point, that constant sort of can be infection really is the idea of like, how do we as a pharmacist help in that cause? Kind of looking at the logistics side of things. So how, how do the partners get these antibiotics? Like how does that, how does that happen? Well, there's really like three ways to do it, right? So you could, you know, you can get it directly from your prescriber and, you know, it's as pharmacists try to expand our ability to prescribe, especially for these public health, these public health needs, to try to have, you know, all prescribers trying to do the things to get access to people who don't have it. Health equity, Dr. Hardy mm-hmm. talked about. But I think really in this case, I would prefer that if a physician has a partner or a patient in their office, say you need to take this both as a patient and here's extra meds for your partner. Yeah. Don't stop at the pharmacy. Go home, find this partner, give them the meds. Here's a sheet. Here's what's going to happen. I really think that it's sort of a, a mechanism of that. Again, as I alluded to the other things is that the physician can write a prescription to give to the patient, and then they can write for, for different partners. Or in New England, you can write for extra doses, but you run into sort of insurance issues, or now the pharmacist is educated in STIs, but they're going, wait, why are you getting 28 pills when you should be getting 14? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to cause confusion or bottlenecks there. So I think we sort of have an all hands, you know, all hands on deck approach here where physicians can prescribe these meds from their office. Honestly, pharmacists can prescribe this on the spot. Um, I, I don't really see that much of a difference there. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that if the, you know, the partner's not coming to the physician's office, but they may go to the pharmacy. And so I think there's a really big role for, you know, to um, decrease barriers for pharmacists prescribing in those situations. And I think you can, one of the things is that um, you can set up collaborative agreements, right? Um, mm-hmm. In some states. Yeah, I see this as, I mean, it, this is sort of like the theme of the, the, the regimen here is that the regimen is mm-hmm. different for pharmacists in different practice. And we, we talked about this this morning is that there are pharmacies that are on board because the physician talked to them about it. And once they 
we're converted, you know, even in a five minute phone call, you know, that that's great. Uh, but if you go to a place where they've never heard of it before, you know, the pharmacist rule for better or for worse is if I'm unfamiliar with it, I'm not going to do it. And, and I don't blame them. They're the most highly regulated profession. But I think that there are pharmacists who are embedded in primary clinics. I'm sure there's some that work mm-hmm. in STI clinics, maybe yeah. even at the VA, where they're going to have independent autonomous prescribing authority. They read the guidelines. They've been trained. People sign off. That's great. We need providers in the VA. You know, that's why I picked that. Libby's going there, so she's yep. going to do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then you, can, you kind of take a step down. Maybe it's community pharmacists in collaborative practice. You take another step down. It's somebody who's maybe screening, you know, or having screening days, or they're going, they're doing outreach, and they're prescribing to partners, take another step down, maybe they're just, you know, making sure they're actively making sure people presenting with these prescriptions are knowing about their partners. And really, the baseline above awareness is really just giving people materials to say, here's, here's this thing, you know, low cost, low effort, Make sure you're aware. Read when you're comfortable. Here's a QR code. Scan yep. this on your phone, and, and here's something mm-hmm. to think about. Yeah, I think having those available is so helpful. Whether it's an app or a paper, you know, when I prescribe EPT to the partner, I sounds like I might be one of the only ones printing off their website, <laughs> <laughs> but I have them, you know, on paper in the office, and I can hand them to the the patient if they're comfortable having those. Um, to give to the partner that has information about EBT. And it's just like, oh, okay, this is a thing. This is official. This is recommended. And I think getting that out there targeted towards uh, pharmacists as well is really important. Uh, yeah, and I know like in sort of like looking at the study that we looked at just from pharmacist perspective and like what mm-hmm. do they really know? And you can sort of see that in those who knew about EBT more it was ultimately the ambulatory care pharmacist, most likely embedded with either in the clinic or like working collaboratively with the clinic. And then it sort of was then community pharmacists, independent pharmacists, et cetera, where, you know, that, that sort of makes sense based upon what we sort of know at this point where that is the practice is really happening. Right. Or one of the things that we talked about too is mm-hmm. the hospital pharmacist, right? So right. there are the, the hospital based community pharmacy, right? So there's a partnership I mean, what's great about that is you've got sort of instant access. You kind of know the docs. You know, you, you can, as, as my colleagues say, they, they train the residents, right, to yeah. say this is, or they train the ER. You talk about the ER. Yeah. Um, they're used to, you know, if, they're, if they get folks from the ER or from urgent care coming to that pharmacy, they're going to be more familiar. They're going to want to do it. And, mm-hmm. um, and again, I think there can be collaborations or screening or things there, too. Mm-hmm. I think the, the important thing, and you mentioned this earlier, is like the pharmacist in the rural area yep. with one primary care, Mm-hmm. I came from a small town, you know, there was one doc, yes. you know, and, and and things are more sensitive and everybody knows each other is to say, this is almost more private, I think EPT yeah. is, to say, Absolutely. here's Absolutely. some extra stuff, mm-hmm. treat this person, don't get reinfected, I care about your yeah. health. I think mm-hmm. knowing those messages and having those accessible, again, through a health department website or something like that or pages, I think is important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like, I think that that's really where this is going to make probably the most impact is really those partners who are unable and practical, Mm -hmm. whatever the situation to seek care, where if that is, you know, being able to find that one doc in the town, if it's in a rural setting, but even just the idea we've talked about COVID, just the idea of that being maybe impractical to go forward and seek care so that this could be really an impactful thing as well. And and just to reemphasize, what hanging over this is that it's an asymptomatic condition. Right, like right. I don't, 
Right. You know, I, I, I hate sort of teaching the STIs and like, I'm going to tell you about all the bad things about sex. Like, okay, you're going to have it. Do it safer. I talk about harm reduction. This is just another harm reduction technique because you're, yes, you're infected. I'm sorry. It happened. It's extremely common. You know, it's, you know, when COVID rates are high, you're going to get, like, you're more likely to get COVID. So if you don't blame the behavior, treat the disease, treat that patient in front of you, and you're treating that patient in front of you by treating their partner, I think that's the sort of stigma paradigm shift that we can we can try to achieve. You have way better meds than we do for COVID. So. <laughs> yeah, that's the, yeah. The more, much more accessible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And pharmacies are in the community. You know, I yeah. think in the patient's medical home, and I think it's a role that's really important. Dr. Matson, going back to the study that you did, so can you tell us about that and like what, why, how this came about, and why you did that? Sure. Um, I sort of joked even this morning. I said, you know, we were. In a room, it was my idea attending with the med students. We had, had extra time. We didn't have much patience. And we're like, she was going to talk about STIs and go through sort of the recent changes and things of that nature. And then after the discussion, she looked at me and she's like, can you tell me about EBT? What do you know? And I had that moment of like, uh-oh, is that a new <laughs> drug? What, what is she asking me, right? And so, you know, we had a small conversation and we sort of said like, oh, you're pediatrics and inpatient and, and maybe ultimately that's why you have like no knowledge of EPT. And then I started asking pharmacy colleagues and they ultimately also didn't know. And then Jeff and I spoke, he, he of course did know. Um, but to that point, he was like, I'm not teaching it. So we had a longer discussion and, and within that we had a student who, Megan Lease, who was ultimately looking for a project and we said, wouldn't this be great to find out what is the familiarity. How much awareness do pharmacists have? And ultimately in that, what kind of training and other things, if they don't know, would they want to to be provided? So that's really how it came to pass. And so with Dr. Wangu and um, all that was mentioned, we took on that study and we sent out emails through the Pharmacist Association listservs for all of New England and then New York as well. And then ultimately looked for some of that, like what, what's the familiarity? How are, much are they aware? And, you know, do they know the legal status of that as well? And then with that, we asked some um, demographic questions and, and truly sort of what kind of training would they like to see? So from the study, what were, your, what were your findings? Pharmacists are not aware. (laughs) That's my mic drop and walk away. Um, But to that point, about half of them really didn't know. And of those that did, as I mentioned earlier, it was most of the time um, two-thirds of the um, ambulatory care pharmacists did, but about 50-50 for community pharmacists and hospital pharmacists alike. Independence, a little bit more that they didn't um, were not aware of EPT. But across the board, it was really a 50-50 split looking at practice sites. And that's kind of what we found. And, and we weren't shocked by that, for sure. Right. I think the most surprising one is how many people found out about EPT through the survey. Mm-hmm. Well, and two things, right? Yeah. So this the survey went out during COVID, yeah. pre-vaccine. And so the, the interesting is that people answered this, you know, in this setting of people getting sick and all these things. So, so in, in a time of stress, people who answered it, and they still honestly said, <laughs> I found this out Via EPT, like the, yeah. about through the survey. So, yeah. I found that, so I'm sure it's even more like we're on the tip of the iceberg of people who fill out surveys. Mm-hmm. But then the tip, of, the tip of the tip is the people who are like, oh, yeah, well, I knew nothing about this until I got this email. Right, right. <laughs> and that was 50% of the people who honestly yeah. responded. And, and you're right, like maybe of the people who didn't even respond that they also didn't know. So 
that's just sort of what we found in, in who participated. What it, was the response rate, the survey response rate? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's unknown because we sent it out to listservs, so we're not really sure how many people got it, it, how many people opened it, all those things. But if we did that among, I don't know, physicians, I think you've said, Dr. Hardy, that... It's very similar to the use of EPT, you know, down around, you know, less than 10%. Um, of those who are familiar. And, and the people who are it. doing it are people like you that you said. Generally who are, yeah, I mean, I think generally uh, it's the folks who tend to do more SDI care. So that could be, you know, OBGYNs, ER and urgent care. I think less so community physicians, private practice might be less familiar with it, you know, kind of as a concept. Mm-hmm. So now that these pharmacists know about it, so... Are pharmacists willing to play a role in EPT and sexual health? That's a great question. And and in all the participants within the survey, 85% overall said that they felt like they did have a role. And so that was sort of the one thing, like, it wasn't so much like, oh, well, this is not, no, I don't want to do that. It was really overwhelming that they felt that they had a significant role within EPT. Uh, and I find that, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I find that, that that's like a really surprising thing because usually we say, you know, there's 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 stigma and we have this thing called the conscience clause. And I know in OB-GYNs, it's probably a whole other podcast and how, who does what yeah. to whom and or what they're willing to do. But they, you know, to say, well, I don't know anything about this. I want to learn about this mm-hmm. because I have a role and this is a public health important thing. I think that's great. And really, they didn't get all the data we've just talked about that. I, I think the people don't know that it's the sixth highest, you know, yeah. it's six years running high, higher and higher every year in terms of prevalence. Since pharmacists are willing and able to play a role, what role can they play? So how can pharmacists impact the use of EPT? Yeah, I mean, I think like in the sense of the awareness and then really sort of understanding what their um, state law and regulation sort of like is is in one of the questions that we did ask is is like what what does EPT cover and ultimately most said they didn't know and then even some of the pharmacists that said that they did know were incorrect in sort of what they the what the state actually allowed and so I think that with that sort of knowing those laws and then being able to sort of understand the differences between Rhode Island and Mass and or where you're practicing then you can start to be able to process that prescription and process it well. Like there was a study sort of looking at that, even when the prescription got to the pharmacist, almost 60% didn't like do what they should have. They were, they basically said, no, I won't fill it because it didn't have a patient name, even though that that was allowable in their state. So those things, just the awareness and then sort of knowing what the regulations are, and then that helps you sort of be able to follow through and be able to fill those prescriptions. Right. Absolutely. And actually, after you guys finished your talk, Joe mentioned to me who will be joining us next week to talk about advocacy. He's like, you know, ideally, I'd love to, you know, if someone comes in and gets a prescription um, as a pharmacist, be like, hey, like, does your partner want this too? Like, can we treat your partner Mm -hmm. as well? And like, be able to initiate that, uh, which I thought was a really great point. And we can do that in passive ways too. I mean, there's so many, you know, it's funny, you get this sheet of paper with your prescription that probably as physicians and pharmacists, we rip off because we don't want to look at that, right? Or patients do it too. And you really just want to have like a QR code and say, Mm -hmm. scan this, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we see that everywhere now. Mm -hmm. Or um, we like, we do other harm reduction activities. We put a sticker on to say, ask anybody mm-hmm. about this like mm-hmm. just if you're interested ask about it right right just even with it, even on the prescript you know the paper bag that you're sort of getting yeah, exactly. like having that qr code with just sort of like 
have you treated your partner? Some some sort of like initiation to sort of have them think about it if it's never been discussed. Yeah, because I think what we've learned is physicians and providers are equally as unfamiliar. And so the pharmacist maybe may have just attended this talk or just listened to this podcast on the way right. to work. And, and maybe the person that knows about this and said, you know, did you discuss this with your physician? Oh, we can actually, you know, we can treat your partner here, you know, things like that. So. You know, I think it's interesting when we think about pharma, we talk about pharmacists in other realms saying, you know, here you play a public health role and, and the bills that are kind of going through the Rhode Island legislature all say, refer them to primary care, refer them to primary care, which I think is like, that should just be a law in itself to say, we want patients to get care because we don't want to treat them after they've gone to the hospital when they right. have untreated or poorly treated diabetes because they just simply didn't have primary care. Or to the ER. Or to the ER, a, yeah. yeah. Minimally symptomatic chlamydia infection because they don't have anywhere else to get care. So, yeah, and you see yeah. that, right? Yeah, absolutely, so, we do. Yeah. Yep. So again, we're not trying to replace care. We're not trying to you know take over turf, but... You know, the, in Rhode Island and New England, every state, mm-hmm. we see the same trends in the disease, diseases increasing and being diagnosed. And again, we can imagine that the there's, like, we even saw it go down in 2020. We mm-hmm. had 2020 data from our Rhode Island and we saw lower chlamydia. Mm-hmm. I'm certain, and I've read experts in STI say that, that we, and I don't, you agree, Erica, mm-hmm. that the, that's lower because of just diagnostic mm-hmm. limitations. Yeah, I think so. And I think also, you know, as we think about, I think COVID has really taught us as we think about ourselves as like a healthcare system. What are ways that we can decompress the ER? You know, we saw during COVID, during a surge, you know, we need to be able to take care of patients with severe COVID and patients with MIs and, you know, other uh, emergencies. And so what are some ways that some of the other patients without access to a lot of other places to get care, you know, naturally we want them to get care. And so they're going to the ER, but are there ways that we can decompress sort of our emergency care system? It almost goes both ways there, where, where the ER could say, look, you're fine. You can sit here for eight hours or two days yep. or whatever it was, right. or you can go to our partner, the pharmacy, where they can they can do X, Y, and Z. Right. Or and then the other way, the pharmacist goes, you know, the patient's like, I've coughed up a cup of blood today. I'm like, you are going to the ER right, right. now. I'm going to call them right. for you. You know, we right. really need. You know, the biggest thing we've talked about on the podcast and other folks have said is like it's this lack of information, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So EPT fits into that. It's like the ultimate lack of information. Be like, well, I've got to, I've got to stop doing something at this point where I don't even know the patient's address. Like, come on, I can't fill this legally. So the more that we have that shared information, like in hospital yeah. pharmacies, like in AmCare, like in inpatient, where we're so used to having all the info yeah, and all the, the access, information, yeah. you know, that we have to think about, again, telehealth and those kinds of connections to say community pharmacists in the community they need to still exist because those pharmacies, we know CVS is closing 300 stores in the next three years. And where are they going to be closed? Maybe in places yeah. where that is the only place to mm-hmm. do that. So, you know, advocating for these things are, again, this is just one example and it may not be a yeah. priority. And I think the other thing I want to hear what you guys think about, inter, and, and all three of you, about interprofessional care. I mean, we did this interprofessional talk, but we really need to sort of say, let's have a public health day. And we have... Rido there. It's almost like we, we've done this before. Yeah. <laughs> really, right? But you have, right, you, and you did this too last year, right? Yeah. Where you have, you have public health saying, here are, are four things we're going to talk about today. And we're going to have physicians and social workers and nurses and pharmacists and so on and so forth. And we're all going to learn the same exact thing and mm-hmm. to say, here's our role and go, wow, we really, there's a need. We all play mm-hmm. a role. 
here's how we do it. I don't know. What do you guys think about that kind of idea? Yeah, I mean, I can talk a little bit about what we've um, done fairly newly at, uh, within my hospital system um, with my um, infectious disease pharmacy, pharmacist colleague, uh, PharmD, um, is work with our hospital pharmacy in dispensing medications for patients. I run the sexual assault follow-up program at Women Infants Hospital. And, you know, a lot of those medications have counseling associated with them. And, you know, more and more uh, pharmacists are comfortable with them. But there's, you know, that you usually get a starter pack in the ER and then getting the rest of the prescription mm-hmm. dispensed um, from the pharmacy. Patients, you know, get a lot of information in the emergency department and so might have questions when they go fill their medications. And the pharmacist is the healthcare provider there that's in that role. And so we partnered with our hospital pharmacy to, if the patient wants to, can get their medications filled there. And so then it's a smaller group of pharmacists. We you know, gave talks and ability to ask questions. So now they are familiar with the patients and what they, you know, got in the ER and what the follow-up plan will be and things like that. So just that the collaborative programs like that, I think are so helpful for everybody. Yeah. And I can say like, even for where I am at the medical center, it's ultimately like, we're even doing this for pediatrics in the sense of not EPT, but just the idea that if you're on the inpatient side we're typically like calling down the prescription to the outpatient pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And we know that that increases adherence and increases their care. So ultimately the parents can go down, they can fill the prescription there easily. They can come up and whether we've had it on both sides, it's who's ever really available. Can us as the pediatric clinical specialist go in and counsel on those medications mm-hmm. or students or residents or is it that the community pharmacist can actually come up and have that mm-hmm. conversation? Mm-hmm. So that those barriers can sort of be lifted and that could happen within the ambulatory care setting that's coming out or within even, you know, having that coming from maybe the ambulatory care setting or the ER to maybe a close local pharmacy that's in the community and having mm-hmm. some of that collaboration happen as well. To beds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meds to, to beds. Yeah. Meds to beds, yeah. So at URI, we do the interprofessional day. I think we did one each semester with, with medical students and social work students and nursing and PT. And I thought that was a really valuable experience, getting to kind of see what everybody else does and what their expertise is. But I also found that it was a good way to advocate for pharmacy and getting them involved with the with the interprofessional team, I was able to, we had this patient scenario and had like a patient actor there. And, you know, I was able to do all of the medication counseling. They asked me like, oh, is this the best like regimen for this? I was like, oh yeah, sure. And so, yeah, like it was great in that setting. And I think like this next generation of providers, especially will really want to integrate pharmacy into the team. But I think a next step too is trying to really integrate the community pharmacist into like that team and really have that continuity of care. Like when you go to pick up your prescription, I think that's a really important like next step going from the hospital, like to, mm-hmm. to the community pharmacy. Yeah, it's the transitions yeah. of care pharmacists, right? Which yeah. again, which to me could be, could be anybody. It's really mm-hmm. just getting everybody. I mean, I always had this idea of seven thirty in the morning, community pharmacist has like a panel of patients and has like a half hour call with like their main care group or a care mm-hmm. group every day and be like, what's going on? What questions do you have? so-and-so didn't come up and you just get to sort of instead of the 12th call mm-hmm. <laughs> nine calls waiting i don't mm-hmm. know i'm gonna give people ptsd by saying that but anyway um, i hear um, that when i go to the party yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. you, you know yeah. i mean like we talked about today where where erica you talked about 
you know, you get, or, or, or Kelly, you talked about how yeah. Zoom would get calls from the pharmacist who doesn't know it. Like, yeah. let's try to have, like you said, have everybody understand, like literally mm-hmm. this, understand that they're really busy mm-hmm. and they don't need a phone call. And so yeah. mm-hmm. using things that like insurance companies have done where they tell you exactly what the reject is and how to fix it. E-prescribing is, I think, a great thing that's, mm-hmm. you know, you know mm-hmm. I can't read your handwriting. Like we've eliminated mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, gosh, I, I would sit at 6 a.m. and VPN in to read the chart of, you know, Epic does mm-hmm. that, too. And I can right. sit at home, tell my students what's going on all securely. You probably do that, too, oh, Kelly. Yeah, sure. If we can do that, why are community mm-hmm. pharmacists not yeah. doing that? Right. And so there, you know, these are the regimens is that if you have the information, you're more comfortable. And I think prescribers are uncomfortable asking pharmacists to do more because they perceive they're, they're too busy they also perceive they don't have information and they say, well, therefore we can't give them stuff. Right. Yeah. And the more, um, you know, I think we do this with in the STI field with, um, you know, the disease intervention specialists that are calling patients for, you know, STIs are mm. reported. And so then someone call, you know, somebody from the Department of Health will call the patient, you know, to talk about notifying partners and things like that. But the more that we as the diagnoser or as a provider can say, you'll probably get a call from somebody from the Department of Health, you know, so they're expecting Mm -hmm. that Mm. and not, you know, no one answers their phone anymore, you know, (laughs) it's all texting these days. But the more you can say, you know, this is a partner in my team, just like, you know, the the pharmacist can say, you know, the physician, oh, I see your physician prescribe this and then, um, and this for your partner. Great. This is, you know, um, this is familiar. The more that we can all partner together, I think the the more helpful it is for the patient to, to see that everybody's working together to um, keep them healthy. Thank you, Dr. Hardy and Dr. Matson, for joining us today. We really appreciate taking the time to do this. And thank you for your wonderful talk at the conference this morning. I know I learned a lot. I think everybody else learned a lot. So, so yes, yeah, so we'll be back next week talking about advocacy to wrap up season two of the regimen.